My name is Paul Duran. I've been, uh, my wife and I have been here at Mansfield Bible Church since uh, 1987. Oh, employers tried to pull me away and did move me out of town a few times, but we came right back to Texas. I'll be reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove, and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Word of God. Go ahead and be seated. Give us just a minute. Get settled up here. Oh, joy. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Paul Duran is also one of our elders here at Mansfield Bible Church. He's been over in the here, put it over here, over in the Spanish ministry for the uh, last few years uh, uh, over there. And we're excited this morning to have our uh, Spanish ministry joining us. They're going to be part of our service uh, now at this time. So we're excited to have you guys. I was looking around. I was looking for. One of my favorite guys, and uh, I think he's out back right now. I was looking for Michael. Uh, I always love seeing Michael get, be able to give him a hug, and I got to give him a hug earlier. I don't always get to see him, but glad to see you all. There he is. He's coming in now. Hi, Michael. Hey, buddy. Good to see you this morning. Um, uh, you get to know them. They're awesome, awesome people. We're just so excited to have them with us this morning and, uh, and all. Paul, glad to have you as well. Paul's been over there, and him and Adon, and Others have been teaching, and we're just excited to have them over and being a part this morning. And this morning, as we uh, kind of get together and get going, we're kind of wrapping up a series here this morning. And so as the Spanish ministry joins us, we're in actually in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 3. We've been going through uh, the seven churches in Revelation. And so this morning, we're in Laodicea, and as you were probably listening and reading if you know my personality or anything about me, you're probably like, oh no, here we go, Greg. Yeah, this is a good one. This is, uh, 
This has been a series where we've been talking and looking at what does Jesus have to say to the churches? What does he have to say to the churches? It's it's an amazing thing. He has a word for us. He's our creator. He's our God. He's our savior. And God wrote a book, didn't he? And in that book, he's explaining things to us so that we would understand and know him. And specifically in these churches, he has a word to the churches. Remember Ephesus. At Ephesus, the issue that they had is they lost their first love. They lost their passion for Christ. And in that process, they had grown away from him. They were so good at all the doing, but there was no passion for Christ. In the church at Smyrna, they were a faithful church. They were enduring great, great persecution. And they were remaining faithful under this weight of pressure of this persecution. And they continued to be faithful. And we learned about being faithful. At Pergamum, we learned that there was compromise going on. They were beginning to to compromise morally. They were beginning to compromise uh, uh, theologically. And as a result, Jesus was confronting. He was guiding them, calling them back. And then we walked into the church at Thyatira, and there they have begun to tolerate. It wasn't just that they were compromising, they were now tolerating it. It was in their midst, and they were acting like it was no big deal. And Jesus addresses the church. He had a word to the church about the issues that were going on within that church, and they couldn't allow it to go on anymore. They couldn't allow tolerance to continue. There are some things that Jesus is tolerant about. And we have to understand that when it comes to the truth of God's word. And so he had a message for them. We, then we saw he had a message for Sardis, the spiritually dead church. They were a church that uh, needed to wake up, needed to come back to life. Uh, they were grown into the place of deadness in their relationship with Christ. And then last week we looked at uh, Philadelphia, the church of Philadelphia, brotherly love, We saw that it was a church that persevered, but it was also a church that God gave great opportunity to as well, that they had an opportunity, an open door for the gospel, and he gives us open doors as well. And so this morning, we're dealing with the church at Laodicea. We all know about Laodicea. It's probably one of the most popular of the seven churches. We all know about it being the church that was lukewarm. And Jesus comes to this church, and he comes with a message whereby he's going to rebuke, where he's going to confront. I know we don't like those terms. I know we don't like them, but those are so important. When we talk about growth, we talk about growing and understanding things, there's times where we need to be rebuked, where we need to be confronted. I've seen it, whether it was in education, whether it was in our children we raise, whether it was training at work, Sometimes there has to be the tough conversations and in order for there to be further growth where else we continue in our, in, our, in our wrong ways. And the beauty of it is Jesus cares enough about his church that he would not allow them to continue in a spiritual condition of lukewarmness. And so this is a message that sometimes at points can be very hard because some of us, we're gonna go, we're gonna look at ourselves and we're gonna go, whoa. And we need to hear. We need to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. I go through this when I prepare these messages. I promise you, there's times where I look at my old life and I go, oh my goodness, Lord, purify me. 
Lord, work in me. Teach me to see these things, that I would incorporate them in my life, that I might be more and more like your son, that I might grow in Christ, that I might grow spiritually. That's why our vision here at Mansfield Bible Church, we talk about learning to follow Jesus. And I love the word learning because it means that we're disciples, we're followers, we're learning how to follow after him. It doesn't mean like we've attained. And if you ever look at me like you think I've attained this or I'm some kind of special person, come hang out with me for a while, okay? I'm not always that great and neither are you. And it's part of how we learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'm gonna get something on that one afterwards, right? <laughs> Gee, did I just insult everybody here, right? Man, maybe I should go, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean it like it sounded, I'm sure. <laughs> man, I'm gonna hear it this week. I'm just gonna tell you. If you, if you know me very well, you know me, and I just say things sometimes and I have to think about it later. Um, yeah. And the reality is, is we all have that sin nature, right? We all have like that old hymn, right? We're prone to wander. And there's times in our lives that we grow in apathy. And there's times in our lives where we grow in, in complacency. And sometimes we need God and we need a spirit to speak to us in such a way that he pierces our hearts. And he reminds us and he calls us back. And Jesus, is, when we look at this letter that he's writing to the church at Laodicea, it's because Jesus loves them enough to not to allow them to remain in this condition. And Jesus loves you enough that he doesn't want to allow you to remain in this place of spiritual deadness, in a place of lukewarm, in a place where that you have grown useless in your spiritual life because you've grown apathetic towards the things of God. And it's important to understand that. So Jesus is not okay with a lukewarm condition, spiritual condition. He wants us to grow. So the first thing he does here in this letter is he talks about when we look at this passage, we see the love of Christ in rebuke. That he really rebukes us. He confronts us. If you will, look at verse 14. It says, And to the, church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The word there, amen, is one of my favorite words. You guys have heard me. I, don't, I, like, I like to hear amens. I like to hear the response because the word simply, literally means it is true. That's all it means. And in fact, I heard it once said that if when God says it and he says amen or it says it is true, and if you ever look at the scriptures, the very last word in the Bible is amen. Did you know that? And it is true. And it's God, when he says it, it's absolutely true. It's gonna happen. When we say amen, we're saying let it be true because we don't have the authority and the power to make things happen. But he does. And he is the amen. He, is the so he has the sovereign ability to fulfill all that he says he will do. That every promise is fulfilled in Christ. It will be accomplished because he is true. It is true. And it says that he is the amen and the faithful and true witness. If you just read past those words, you think, oh yeah, that sounds real good, right? But when think about it for a minute, that Jesus is true in everything he says and he does. His teaching, his miracles, his life, his death, his resurrection, 
Every aspect of that is true. All the blessings that are accomplished in the gospel, they are true because he is true. And I like this phrase here because it says faithful and true witness. That he's not only true in all that he says and all that he does, he is also faithful in all he says and all he does. But then it uses the word witness. You know, witness can be really good sometimes, right? If you have a witness that saw it and they allowed truth in this. I remember several years ago, my daughter was in an accident and, and it wasn't her fault, but everything was kind of pointing to her. The people were saying, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't drive through the red light and all this. And they were looking for these witnesses. And finally, they got a hold of these two people that said they saw the accident and they told what happened and then my daughter was, was not at fault. The truth came because that's what a witness does. A witness brings truth to it. And Jesus is the true and faithful witness. Well, that's great. But it also means that when he confronts, that he is true and faithful. And that he addresses things in our lives that we need to hear. And that he is bearing truthful witness against the lukewarmness of this church. And then it says the beginning of God's Creation. A lot of times when we think about beginning, we're thinking of this idea of first in sequence or first in time, kind of the start. But a lot of times in scriptures, when it uses that word beginning, it also has more of the idea of priority. That when you look in all of creation, Jesus is the priority. By him, all things consist. By him, all things were created. We know that in the Gospel of John, chapter one. We know that in Colossians, that he holds these things together because he is the priority of creation. And so as Jesus begins to address this church and as he begins to address the issue within the church in regards to their lukewarmness, he identifies who he is and that he is the one who is true. He is the faithful and true witness as he testifies against them on their condition and their spiritual lukewarmness, that they need to be hot instead of, or instead of lukewarm, where they need to be cold instead of lukewarm. And we'll look at that in a minute. And that he is the priority in creation. He has a priority in what he says. And that we as his servants need to hear because Jesus is addressing this church. And what's ironic in this church, out of all of the churches, he has no praise for them. The other churches he would talk about, maybe there's a few handful of faithful, where he would talk about their work and how they've, how they've been faithful in their work. Here he has nothing. It's really a shocking idea when you walk into this church and you realize, well, wait a second, we looked at, we looked at um, uh, Thyatira, we looked at Pergamum. They had, there was sexual immorality going on in that church. And yet he still had, there was praise for some of those that was within the church. But we walk into this church and there's no praise because lukewarmness creates apathy towards God. It devalues who he is, it devalues his gospel, it devalues his truth, and we lose it in our lives and, it, and there's just nothing to praise about that. In verse 15, he says, I know your works. We've seen this every single letter where Jesus, there's nothing hidden from him. He knows, he knows what's going on in the church. I've always said there's, there's no one within the church. There's not gonna be a pastor. There's not gonna be an elder. There's not gonna be a staff person. There's not gonna be a lay leader. There's not gonna be anybody in church that he's not gonna know what's going on. We're not gonna get away with our sins. 
We're not going to get away with our unrighteousness. He will address those, and we by faith believe in him who addresses it. And he says, I know your works. You're neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, the, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some harsh words, right? Now, Laodicea was kind of unique in that they had really no supply of water. There was just none. They were dependent on other cities. So there was uh, Hyrenius or Hyrenius Populus or something like that. Anyway, there was this one city over here, okay? And they had hot springs. And they would ship in the water through aqueducts to, to Laodicea. So when it would leave, it would be like 95 degrees. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was very lukewarm. And then there was Colossae, it was another direction. They had, they had cool springs and they would, they would ship in the water from there and go through these great aqueducts over several miles. And they would leave cold, but by the time it got to Laodicea, it was very lukewarm. So Laodicea, when anytime you use these terms, they understood what lukewarm was. They understood exactly what that meant, anything that was associated with it. And when you begin to think about it in the end, when you talk about lukewarmness, it's just kind of downright disgusting. I mean, like with cold, I mean, it's refreshing. You know, you're on a hot day, you throw cold water on you, it feels good. Where when, when you take hot water or, you know, tea, hot tea, it's soothing. But you take lukewarm and it just was useless. I remember, I've, some of you, if you've been around a long time, you probably heard me share this before. It's my favorite story when I talk about lukewarm. I was working at Burger King. I was just starting out in the restaurant business. It was many, many moons ago. And uh, we were getting ready to open this restaurant. And we had these big wigs that were coming in and they were gonna tour the restaurant. We hadn't opened yet. Um, the, the guy, the store manager at the time, he had hired this porter to come in and clean and, and so forth. And he, that morning, came in, got him a cup of coffee. And, you know, and he got to work and set his coffee down, got to working on, his, on, on the stuff that he was doing. And, and uh, the, the big wigs started coming through and the owner was there and key people from uh, corporate was there and, and the store manager was there. And I was trying to make sure things were going right as well. And just as they were walking, he grabs his cup that he hadn't touched in who knows how long. And he takes a drink and it's lukewarm. And just as he took the drink, it just was repulsive, right? Just came back out right in front of him. And when he did, his teeth came right out with him. <laughs> Not exaggerating. Just went sliding across the floor, you know? Never forgot that, you know? I mean, when you talk about lukewarm, there's just nothing good about it, right? I've always remembered that because when you talk about lukewarm, it's just, not, it's just not helpful. So what is Jesus doing here when he's talking about lukewarmness? Jesus is taking a physical reality that those in the church of Laodicea totally and completely understood, and he's using it as a metaphor. Now he's applying it to their spiritual lacking that is to what is happening at the church in Laodicea. He's taking a picture for them that every one of them knew and understood in a very physical reality. And he's using it as a metaphor to identify where they're at spiritually. You understand that? So they understood lukewarm water, but they didn't understand lukewarm spiritual. 
And he's wanting them to understand the reality of this, of, this, of this condition in which they find themselves to the point that he says, man, when I look at your spiritual condition, it makes me want to puke. Just like that guy, man. I, just, I mean, I, never, I, I saw him take the drink. I'll never forget this. As vivid as I'm standing here. And it was just immediate. Just, it's the reaction. Now, some people want to take this and make it mean like, in fact, when you talk about cold and hot, is that saved and unsaved? No. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. It's talking about usefulness. That when we walk after Christ, we're to be useful, right? That we need to be refreshing. Or we maybe need to be healing. We may need to be that that we minister to others. But if we're apathetic spiritually, we're useless. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to his church is to him that's repulsive. Think about that. Yeah, let it sit for a second because it, it strikes me. It strikes me. And what he says to them in the very next verse, in verse 17, he says, for I say, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And Jesus says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This was a very self-sufficient church, a very independent church. And when we talk about self-reliance and we talk about self-sufficiency, that we are independent and we need nothing, it really plagues our, our whole culture. It alienates us from our God because now we become dependent on ourselves and not dependent on him. And it destroys our relationship with us. Look at the flow. Look at the flow of what they're saying of their independence. They say, I am rich. In other words, I have abundance. I have abundance. I am rich. I never forget it. I was working for uh, a man who was very well off. He had multiple restaurants. I was managing for him at the time. And I'll never forget he had was moving and his wife dropped a hot pan on the floor. They'd already sold it. I don't, I don't remember if they had actually closed it yet or not, closed on the closing of the house. But she dropped a hot pan on the floor and it burned a hole there in the floor. She's like, oh no, what do I do, what do I do? And he basically just take a wad of money and throw it on the floor, let's go, right? Because when you get to that place of abundance, you really don't worry about some things. And they're saying, we have abundance, I am rich. I have prospered. In other words, they were, they were continuing to add to their wealth. I need nothing. In other words, they were independent from others and from God. Laodicea was so wealthy that in 60 AD, an earthquake devastated the city. Rome offered to come in and help, and they said, no, we got it. And they rebuilt the city themselves. They were great and abundant. Now, is this a message where we're saying, hey, wealth is evil? That's not what I'm saying. But when we talk about self-sufficiency, where we get to a place where we don't need God, that is a problem. Because then what happens is then we grow a distance from God and we begin to separate ourselves and we alienate ourselves from him. 
And this was the problem at Laodicea. And the question is, is it our problem? You know, have we grown to a place in the church today? And I'm not just talking just Mansfield Bible, but just as a whole. No, let me bring it back. Let's talk about Mansfield Bible. I don't know all the other churches. Have we grown to a place in our spiritual walk after God that we have become distant to him? I mean, you know, sometimes uh, somebody this morning was asking me how I was doing. And I'm, if you know me, I'm kind of like, um, I, I kind of say what I'm thinking and, you know, what you see is what you get, kind of a deal. <clears throat> and I was just thinking, wow, you know, it's just there's times where life is just tough, right? It's just tough. But then I'm like, you know, life is it's great. I mean, to get to this place in your life where, you know, I mean, the last year we've seen, we've had to dig under Two different, we have a little rent house that we have that you dig under that to fix plumbing. You ever done that? I know the Johnsons are here. They've done that. You know, you dig, that, that's not cheap. And then you start having all these things happening. And in the midst of it, you're, you're saying, hey, life is not defined by our circumstances, right? Our life is defined by who we are in Christ. And is that a reality? And find yourself going through and you're going, you know, there's a peace that I know that I've never known outside of Christ. There's a comfort that I understand that I've never known outside of Christ. I mean, the joy of the Lord, have you experienced the joy of the Lord? There's nothing sweeter. To go and sit with my God and open his word, to, to hear and to find his hand is kind of come under and hold me up. How can life be so bad? But when you find yourself being dependent on yourself and you're not dependent on him, it's just lacking. You see, in Christ, I begin to realize in Jesus, I have everything, everything, everything I need for life and for godliness and for righteousness. I have everything in Christ. But I've started realizing that in self, it is never enough. There's not an end. There's not a fulfilling, fulfilling moment to a place where you go, wow, and I'm in of myself, I'm it. I'm sufficient. And you find yourself being alienated. And when you live in a world, in a culture that focuses on self-sufficiency and being self-focused, it's really tough for the church in the midst of that culture and that world to find itself depending on God. We have a tendency to kind of fall in, to get sucked into our culture. And it takes a discipline, a walk of faith to center our lives on Christ and to be gospel-minded. And that was the problem at the Church of Colossae. You see, when you start depending on self, you know what? The reality is, dear people of God, you can't serve God and money at the same time. You just can't. It's impossible, the Bible said. It's impossible. It's impossible to serve God and self. It's impossible to put self on top and then say, God, yeah, you're important. It's impossible. You can't do it. 
When you put yourself and you have it as the efficiency of your life and you're so self-reliant and you're so self-dependent, what you begin to do is you look over here at some of the things of God and you go, you know what? I like this about God. I like this about the church. I like that. But then you look into the world and you go, boy, I really like this. And I like this. I remember as a kid, my mom and dad used to say this all the time. And I guess, you know, maybe... It's not as much as it was then, but I remember as a kid, my mom and dad used to say, man, if only I had a million dollars. Yeah, you're chuckling because you probably have said something like that, right? And what does that statement mean? You believe that a million dollars will solve your problems, but God won't. Is our God not able? Is he not sufficient? Is he not able to to see us through, but it's got to take a humility, a, a spirit of humility and a spirit of dependency on our almighty God. It's believing that when all those things seem to be falling apart, that God hasn't changed and he will carry me through. That when we become so focused on ourselves that we begin to become so self-efficient that we cannot see him anymore. We begin to rely on our own thinking and our own ways And we've come to a place where we just don't need him anymore. It disappears. Why do you think our adversary, just to be honest, why do you think our adversary today uses the mass communication of the promotion of self in our culture? Why? Because when he does, when people focus on self, it dulls our need for God and for the gospel. When we focus on ourselves, all of a sudden the little white lie means nothing and what God has said isn't as important because now the focus is on myself, what I want to accomplish, what I want to do. And it alienates him. And Jesus is saying that that spiritual condition at Laodicea that they were struggling with and their self-dependency, he says, it just makes me want to puke. difficult, isn't it, to talk about these things? But we need to pull out and look in our hearts. Look what he says in verse, again, in verse 17. He says, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But then look what, what is the reality? Not realizing, you see that word? Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, and poor, and blind, and naked, You think you have everything, but in reality, you are dirt poor. In reality, you are pitiful. In reality, you are naked. In reality, you can't even see your own shame. The reality is, dear people of God, is that lukewarm living prevents us from seeing God in his power and in the power of the gospel. Lukewarm living causes to lose sight of the gospel. When we are living in a lukewarm life, all of a sudden the things of what God has done becomes less important. We become dull to the reality that God himself sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who went to the cross, who on that cross died a horrific death, in our place and took upon himself 
the wrath of God for our iniquities, that he might make us righteous in Christ. And that Christ, experiencing that death, was buried and he rose again and he lives today and he is coming again and he will be the judge of the living and of the dead and he is gonna gather his people together. You see, when you begin to live in a lukewarm life, those things you become dull with and you become dull towards the truth of the gospel in your life. But when you understand the reality of what God has done in the gospel, it moves you to a passion. It moves you to a place whereby you are serving and pursuing him. And there's a fire in your life and a passion in your life because of the realities of the gospel. And when you're living lukewarm spiritually, then those things just really aren't important when you're talking about the gospel. And apathy sets in, God has forgotten but when you recognize the gospel in your everyday life and you begin to see it, there is a passion and a fire that you cannot deny. Amen? Amen. So, you know, when we see Christ rebuking the church here and he's dealing with them, we see the love of Christ. And right now, maybe it's not so loving because you're thinking, wow, Jesus, you're saying some pretty tough things, but thank God he says them. And now he goes on in verse 18 and we begin to see the love of Christ and his discipline, he says to them in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And I love this passage because so many times, and, and, and sometimes I try to bring it out when we've gone through these churches, there's so much in these words and the description of the church and the city and what's going on there that he's dealing with in the spiritual life. And really, dear people of God, it is so true that if we're not careful, we get sucked, sucked into our culture in such a way that we lose sight of who Christ is in our life. We lose sight of who we are in Jesus Christ. And it really takes a focused walk of faith in Christ in order to understand the realities of our life and not just get sucked into the ways of the world. It's interesting, when you look at Laodicea, they were famous for being a banking center. They were known for their banking. They were also known for their fashion. Did you know that? So when he says, hey, buy gold, and there's a lot of different implications here that we don't have time with, but when he says buy gold, they were a center of banking. They were also fashion, so he's telling them, you know, white robes, but they were known for their black wool. Uh, it, was, it was amazing, in fact, some of the things you read, just uh, the fashion industry that they had that made them so popular and wealthy. But instead of black wool, well, he tells them he's gonna give them white garments for purity. There's so much there. And then he says, they were also known for their medical schools. The doctors there, they had this eye salve that would be for their healing of their eyes and their vision. People came to them. These, these three things really just led to their wealth and their dependency on themselves. And you know, all that stuff that's going on and all that wealth there, and he's counseling them to buy this, and you know what, and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Put your finger here, I, I don't, a lot of times I like putting it up in a slide, but turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter eight. I won't stay there long, I promise you. If you ever get, if I, you get me into Romans, I like to stay there sometimes, because it's so powerful. But in Romans chapter eight, he's just spent 
eight chapters really talking about the power of the gospel and all that the gospel has. And he's coming to, a, uh, to the ending here of this argument as he begins to move into chapter nine and so forth. But in eight, chapter eight, verse 12, I want you to read these words with me. He says, so then, brothers, brothers, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now stop and think for me, with me for a minute. When we're self-reliant, what is our focus? Yeah, it's the wealth, it's what we wear, it's what we accomplish. It's all of those things. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Pretty plain, right? I mean, one or the other. It's very plain. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. We're his children. That's why I call you the dear people of God so much. We're the people of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I'll never forget, I was just, just out of high school and I was really, my life was just really changing. I was really getting excited for the Lord. And I'll never forget, man, I was reading here and I was like, I read this word, co-heirs with Christ. I was like, wait a second, the son of God? I'm a co-heir with Christ? I was like, I couldn't believe it. I remember going to the college director and going, what does this mean? I'm a co-heir with Christ? He says, yeah, you're part of the family of God. I'm like, I'm part of the family of God and I get to inherit with Christ? Yeah. I'm like, you gotta be kidding. Why, didn't, why don't people talk about this? That's pretty amazing. You know, I get to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ. It blows me away. The reason we're a co-heir is because he made us part of his family that we might cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And that suffering really, and he gets down into it in the next verses, I believe is part of just our spiritual struggle to remain faithful and focused in Christ. That we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. You know, I started thinking about it, man. You can take the top 10 richest people in the world, put all their money together, right? And it's not enough. It's not enough. It can't buy the blessings and the riches of the gospel. It can't do it. I mean, I mean, you're talking guys like Elon Musk and you guys know him better than I do. Probably Jeff, what, the guy over there at Amazon. Yeah, yeah I knew. I was just messing around, you know. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you know, we look at him, we're like, wow, you know, they drive these cars and, you know. That isn't life, dear people of God. Life is Jesus. Life is Jesus. And when we begin so focused in ourselves and what we want in the world, we get alienated. You know, I did a little deal right after that. I started searching. I was thinking about those 10. I was like 10 richest Christians in the world. I was really disappointed, to be honest with you. It was mostly uh, televangelists, to be honest with you. <laughs> Just being real here. One of them's right over here in Dallas, you know. 300 million. Like, you know, these other guys are billions. I mean, 
trillion. Oh, I don't know. If you got more money, I can even count, right? It's not enough. It's not enough. Sometimes the trials and the difficulties that we go through are simply God working on us to make us like his son so that we're not lukewarm. And if you came in this morning and you heard, you're hearing this message and you've been lukewarm, maybe God's challenging you this morning because he loves you enough to confront you and to discipline you that you might not be lukewarm so that you would be in your pursuit be after him and not your own things. That we would not. In fact, that's what he says back in uh, Revelation in chapter three. Then he says to those whom I, in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. To be zealous and repent. It's the idea if if you're, going down this path and you make a decisive decision to quit going this direction and to go the other. That's, what it, that's simply what repent means. That we quit going this way and we start going that way. We quit pursuing self and we pursue Christ. And here's the reality, you know, when you, I know when I say this kind of stuff and I know people are like, oh, you just, you know, it's all about poor me. I'm not talking about poor me. I mean, I'm a child of the king, by the way. My God is the God Almighty from everlasting to everlasting, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is able to sustain me and keep me till eternity to come. I'm resting him, him alone. There's no one else. I'm not talking about putting ourselves down. I'm talking about a realization of who we are, that we need to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and recognize who he is. That when we hold ourselves up and we resist, remember who is a true and faithful witness that when we stand and we say, hey, we're something, and he, he brings to reality the light of the truth of that. To get passionate about Jesus, to get fired up. So he not only loves us in rebuke and in discipline, but he also invites. In verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. I always love this verse. I know I grew up seeing this as a kind of evangelistic verse, the opportunity to lead people to Christ. In reality, he's writing to a church of people that are believers. He's, it's really an invitation. It's an invitation to come into to fellowship. It's an invitation of intimacy, an invitation into the presence of God. You see, when we pursue ourselves in this picture, where's Jesus? He's on the outside. He's knocking on the door. Because God desires intimacy with you. He desires fellowship. And he desires his, your, his presence with you, to you to be a presence with him. He desires that. He desires that relationship with you. And you get that by faith. And you receive him. You see, when you're independent and you're depending on yourself and you're self-reliant, you leave him out there. Because it's about you, it's not about him. But when we humble ourselves and a church that is humbling itself, that's broken and understands its condition, we fling the door open and we say, come Jesus, please come. Oh, thanks for being here. It means so much. I mean, you ever had that visit from somebody that just means so much to you? This is so much greater. 
And the reality is he's always there and he's always ready. And maybe you've been going down a road of lukewarmness and it's time to humble yourself and to turn and to be zealous after the Lord. Maybe that's a time now. I love this because it shows the love of Christ after a very difficult passage right here. He's telling them still, I love you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to be in relationship with you. He's not throwing them off and casting them off. Sometimes I think we've done a bad job as believers, as Christians, in communicating the gospel to the world. We almost like, you know, we throw dirt at them and we throw, and we say they're worthless and da da da. No, those are the ones we're calling to the gospel. And sometimes we do that in the church. You know, people fall and they stumble. That's why I think God made me the way I am, just so I could always fall and stumble so that y'all, you know, it's okay to fall and stumble too. And then he just picks us up and he keeps us. And it's of a humble heart. It's in a spirit of humility and trust that we approach him. And we find all the blessings because that's what he desires. God desires to be in a right relationship with you. He desires that. And he loves you enough that he's not gonna let you determine what the relationship looks like. Because he already knows. He created you. He made you. He knows exactly what you need. And he knows how to give it to you. And it is our own hearts that prevents us from receiving the goodness of our God. Verse 21, let me wrap this up. I've just looked up and realized I need to wrap it up. Verse 21, the one who conquers, and we've looked at this in the other letters, how do we conquer? By faith. Now look what he says here. This just blows me away, man. If this doesn't get you excited and starts making you jump up in the streets, I don't know. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Are you kidding me? I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He's using the illustration of him conquering sin and death. And he conquered and he went and sat down at the right hand of the father. And you know what he tells to those who believe, who conquer? You're going to sit with me. Are you kidding me? Beyond measure. Are you, how do you, that's amazing. He's saying, you're going to sit with me. That's how important we are to him. I just blows, blows me away that in this difficult passage that we so much focus on, we like, we, we want to focus on, oh, he sped us out, hot and cold. We didn't measure up. He, we want to focus on all these things. And the reality is he's, con he's confronting us and he's calling us to a right relationship because he loves us enough that he wants to have a relationship with us, but he's not gonna give up his holiness. He's not gonna sacrifice his person in order just to have a relationship. He's calling us out of our iniquity that we might be in right relationship with him through the gospel. Amazing to me, our God. Very last verse, this is the only way I know how to end this series, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, we've gone through all seven of these churches and there's been a lot of things and some of them have been pretty tough to deal with. 
Some of them have been pretty hard. And in the end, our God is still saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how you walked in today, but God does. I don't know what you're facing. Maybe you're at the end of your rope. Maybe you start wondering if God really, really loves and cares about you. Well, he does. And you just needed to hear that this morning. You needed to see his love again. That he's accomplished everything that he said he would do. And you simply receive it by faith. I don't know where you are, but today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. If you don't know Christ, this is the time. If you walked in this morning and you've been kind of distant in your relationship with God and you've been, been separated and been away from him, alienated from him, today's the day to zealously repent and turn to him. Okay, today. Don't walk out of here and continue in your way. Allow God to work in your heart today. We'll have people up here in the front praying afterwards. If you wanna come up with them and have someone pray with you, encourage you, please do take advantage of them. All right, let's pray. Father God, I just pray your spirit would move among us in such a way that, Father, only you are glorified. I pray, God, that there's some this morning who probably need, need Christ. I pray today, Father, that uh, today would be the day that they would receive Christ in their life and by faith trust in him, him alone for their salvation. I pray, Father, there's others this morning who probably have gotten busy with the world and gotten going so, so crazy that, Father, they've just kind of drifted. They've kind of, kind of alienated themselves from you, Father, and they've gotten to the place of just being confident in what they have, maybe in their bank account or in their ways or in their work. And somehow, Father, just kind of you got pushed out. And Father, they needed to hear your spirit speak to them today to, to draw them back and in right relationship with you. Father, may you do that. May, you, may their hearts be weak and ready to receive your, your spirit. Father, you just move as you see fit for your glory and your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.